look at your business currently and you think, I'm not doing anything that's secular. I'm still working in that linear mindset of taking resources from the planet, making something out of them, selling it, and then not bothering about what happens after you sell it. That is a redundant way of thinking, but actually there probably is things in your business that you're doing that are secular that you've maybe not thought about. And there's some really easy things that you can do to make your business more secular. Hello and welcome to UmiCast, a podcast about business and entrepreneurship. At Umi, we make it easier for businesses to do more and go further by finding and packaging the best information, expertise and finance so you can make better business decisions more quickly. This conversation is with someone who is at the forefront of efforts to make the beauty and personal care industry more sustainable. Joe Chidley is the co-founder and driving force behind Beauty Kitchen. You might have seen Beauty Kitchen's range of natural and sustainable skincare, hair care, hand and body products as they're in many of the major retailers across the UK, such as Boots, Holland and Barrett and ASOS. But the company was really founded by Joe and her husband, Stuart, to do something about and address the fact that 95% of beauty packaging is thrown away after just one use, which creates billions of pieces of plastic every year. So Joe and the team, as well as running Beauty Kitchen, also launched the RE scheme as a buy anywhere, return anywhere, reuse anywhere alternative to single use packaging. Uh, and it's already been adopted by industry leaders like Unilever and Elements. So you'll you'll hear Joe talk a little bit about the re-scheme in this conversation. We also talk about Joe's experience attending the recent UN Climate Conference in Glasgow and what it said about the importance of collaboration, both between businesses and between countries in tackling global warming. Also, how reusability is being adopted across the beauty industry uh, following Joe's lead. And then the endless list of reasons why businesses need to get ready for net zero if they want to be around in the future. So if you're a business looking for some practical advice uh, and hard truths, to be fair, about how the business landscape is moving in a sustainable direction, then listen to what Joe has to say, as I'm sure it'll be of huge value. So without further ado, this is Beauty Kitchen founder, Joe Chidley on the beauty of sustainability. Uh, Well, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Uh, Really looking forward to chatting to you about Beauty Kitchen and all the great work that you and the team have been doing to reduce waste and and get the beauty industry on a more sustainable uh, footing. But obviously, we're just a couple of weeks out from COP26, uh, and I know you were at the conference. So, you know, could you just start us off by telling me what you got up to at the conference and, and what you made of that whole experience? Yeah, we were we were really fortunate that COP26, not only was it in the UK, but it was in Scotland and it was in my home city of Glasgow. And um, because we run a circular business model, and what I mean by that is that we have Beauty Kitchen, which is an indie beauty brand. So we sell things like um, body wash, shampoo, conditioner, moisturizer, skincare, all of that good stuff. 
but we also have RE, which is a reusable packaging system. And that reusable packaging system is used by Beauty Kitchen, but it's also used by other industry players. Unilever being one of them. And we announced at COP26 that LMS, which is a premium spa brand, will be next to use that reusable packaging format. And when you run a secular business model, it's not just about your business being secular and utilizing resources in a renewable, reusable fashion. It's also about looking to other industries and other businesses that can utilize what you've developed so that your experience that you gain, you know, it's not just about competitive advantage, it's about competitive advantage for all. And that's a very different way of doing business. So the fact that COP26 was, on Gla was in Glasgow was great for us. We were really fortunate to be invited to both the blue zone and the green zone. And for anyone that doesn't know what COP26 is and hearing this for the first time, the blue zone is where all the negotiations happen. It's the conference of parties. That's that's what it means. And what it means by that is that there, there is people from all over the world in all different circumstances. So they might be government officials. They might be sometimes on occasion, their businesses or NGOs. And that is generally charitable organizations. And it's bringing those voices together all in the one area but it's an invite-only scenario. And when it comes to the negotiations, um, you know, that's very much at a policy level because what the United Nations want to do is they want to get as many countries involved in preparing for the changes within the climate and how do we reduce that. Mm. When it comes to the green zone, that's really where business is at and that's where the main partners um, that sponsored the green zone which included scottish power it included nat west it included sainsbury's and sainsbury's is one of our customers you know we bank with nat west and scottish power we've been heavily involved with them as well in giving direction on sustainability measures so it was really nice to be able to it was like the, the best two weeks of networking that could possibly happen. The other thing it does is that it, and, and anyone that runs a business will understand this, that you get into the detail of your business, the day-to-day -day running all the time. And sometimes you need to be pulled out of that so that you think differently and you give your brain some space to think differently. And there was quite a lot of brain space that, that, that happened during those two weeks. Mm, yeah, I think the importance of collaboration is obviously really important in the context of uh, businesses working together to, you know, reduce the impact on the environment. And then COP26 was was really the perfect opportunity for businesses to do that. And then also for, for governments and NGOs and other stakeholders to do that as well. So the dust settled a little bit now, Joe. You know, do you think that we made significant progress there? Um, you know, obviously some of the analysis that, that, that came out has been fairly mixed, but, you know, you were there. So, you know, how do you sort of reflect on it now? You know, in my feeling, I'm a pretty positive person and I'm pretty action orientated. And I think a lot of the times people talk about things and it, the intention doesn't necessarily mean that action will be taken. The one thing the Glasgow Agreement 
had, you know, there were several things in that Glasgow agreement that have never, fossil fuels has never been talked about or negotiated on at any previous COP. And there's been 25 of them. So for that, you know, okay, there's lots of people saying we could have been more, you know, ruthless in how we were talking about fossil fuels and militants. But the fact that, you know, it was recognised as this is an industry that is now obsolete and we need to work our way out of relying on that industry. The challenge that you always have is you can't just cut off an industry and you just can't cut off the way that you do business. You have to find ways of bridging between the new ways of working and rewiring from the old ways. And don't get me wrong, there will be there will come a time when potentially you have to be more militant. I'm not sure that time is, you know, this year. And I think businesses like ours can demonstrate that a small indie brand can make huge strides with much bigger organizations and challenge them and put them on the spot around how they approach their business. And I think that collaboration is tricky. And collaboration within businesses, as in different businesses, is, is very tricky. It isn't tricky for us because, you know, that's how we work. But getting other people to work in that way when they haven't before it is tricky. But with trickiness comes opportunity. And I think that's the big thing that came out of the Glasgow Agreement for me. If you look at your business currently and you think, I'm not doing anything that's circular, I'm still working in that linear mindset of taking resources from the planet, making something out of them, selling it, and then not bothering about what happens after you sell it. That is a redundant way of thinking. But actually, there probably is things in your business that you're doing that are circular that you've maybe not thought about. And there's some really easy things that you can do to make your business more circular. The one for me is a renewable energy supplier. So every business uses electricity. Are you on a renewable energy tariff or are you still in a fossil fuel tariff? There's something really simple that can reduce your emissions significantly by just moving from one electricity supplier to another. So I think we just need, everybody needs to help each other in understanding. See, when we talk about circular models or economy, we're not trying to exclude people. We want to include because we're all in this together and you can't exclude people. And that's a real driver for us. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of established businesses or, you know, businesses which have typically had a reliance on fossil fuels or they've created a lot of waste may feel that they have to completely upend their business model to become more sustainable. But like you say, Joe, you can make relatively small changes to, to in terms of sort of your bottom line that can have a, a big impact on emissions. And I think that's definitely something that we'll uh, return to um, a little bit later on. So just moving on to your kind of background in business, Joe. So you studied uh, chemistry at, at university. So you know, had it always been part of the, the the plan that you would start your own company, and and yeah, how did how did you sort of come around to to doing what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, the background that I come from, you know, having the word business owner or entrepreneur was never in any of my family background really at all. It you know, it was a very much a, a strong working class background, and what I mean by that is. 
that you tried to get a really good job and you could progress within that organization or within other organizations. Um, I think I would love for, for you know, younger people to, to talk more about doing things and solving problems because that's really what entrepreneurship is about. And I've always been a big one of solving problems. I'm really curious and, and I can't let things go. So, you know, if somebody says, oh, no, it can't be done or that doesn't work or whatever that is, I, I need to find out why. Um, and I think that has been a big driver. In terms of my background, you know, I, I didn't get into university immediately. I had to do an access course through college. But when I left there, I had the opportunity to work for some big organizations. And, you know, that gave me that breadth of experience of working with very different people um, on lots of different projects. But I think ultimately, although I didn't set out thinking, oh, I'm going to run my own business, it was pretty clear early on that, you know, the, the entrepreneurship part of your brain doesn't work well in big organizations because they're quite bureaucratic and, you know, they tend to want to move quite slowly and, you know, so, and that just didn't fit well with, you know, what I wanted to do. So I think ultimately I always knew that I'd want to do something on my own, but it wasn't something that I set out to do. Yeah. I think people talk about entrepreneurship as almost being like this instinctive uh, thing that you, it's almost a bit of a calling and, and, even if you haven't had an entrepreneurial background, you know, like, you, you know, like you say, if you, you come from a working class background, you know, there's not necessarily business owners in the family and things like that. There is just those kind of temperaments and attributes that you intuitively just have as a human being that kind of make it inevitable that this is what you're going to end up doing. So obviously this is, this is beauty kitchen. That's how that's manifested itself. So just, you know, tell me a little bit about the company and how it's, kind of grown and changed over the last seven years? Yeah, I mean, so we're a husband and wife team co-founders and Stuart and I wanted to run a sustainability company. We were obsessed by cradle to cradle principles. If you don't know what that is, doing a browser search, cradle to cradle is where they help you design products and services that fit into a circular business model. So that, that is what they do. And you don't need to certify with them to access a lot of their information, which I think is great. Um, both Stuart and I have a background in health and beauty. And, you know, my chemistry background has helped. And that's where we thought, if we look at an industry to be able to disrupt that from a sustainability perspective, the personal care and beauty industry was definitely ripe for that. Now, at the time when we did it, nobody was that interested in sustainability. There was a fluttering of natural ingredients, organic ingredients. That was a bigger movement at the time when we started the business. But when it came to things like packaging or cradle to cradle, you know, certification and, and B Corp certification for that matter, nobody was doing any of that. And that's where we could stand out from the crowd um, with that. But we always knew that we would be using Beauty Kitchen as a vehicle to be able to change the rest of the industry. And that's a, that's a mind, mind um, mindset shift, sorry, I lost my, my track there. And what I mean by that is generally when people set up businesses, they set up businesses to, to solve a problem. Yet a lot of the times they don't want to necessarily share those solutions with their wider industry. That was never our, our standpoint and foundation has always been to take everyone else with us. 
And at the beginning, that kind of unnerved a lot of people. You know, people think, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to share, you know, your formulations or share the way that you do things? Fast forward, you know, to um, now, and everybody is now thinking, well, that is the way that we should be working. And the great thing about that is that we're already ahead of the curve on that. So we are already helping and people are coming to us. So our reusable packaging system, RE, we haven't done any business development. We haven't gone out, you know, to seek new sales. Everything has come into us so far. Now, there'll be a time when that won't happen anymore. I know that. But that's the kind, that's how far ahead we were, is that we are now known as the industry leaders within sustainability, not just within a formulation perspective, but within a packaging infrastructure perspective as well. Yeah. And is it right, Joe, that the the beauty industry produces billions of, yeah. of pieces of packaging every year? It just seems it just seems it. Imagine trying to put all of that into a picture. Yeah. So I guess so, you know, if you if you think of anywhere that you shop, whether that's online or whether it's just your local supermarket, you know, and it can even be your local independent store. If you go to where you would buy a shampoo or a shower gel from there, you will find nothing in reusable packaging. Then imagine how many stores there are just in the UK alone, thousands. Then multiply that, you know, you easily get into the, you know, I think the number is about 120 billion, but I suspect it's probably more than that. But whatever way we look at it, you know, it's it's a homophily. It's like it needs to change. There needs to be more variety. There needs to be more access, convenience and choice within reusable packaging. Yeah, I think you've you've clearly identified an industry that's that's ripe for disruption disruption. And it's it's really nice to hear that, you know, having been open and, and transparent about um the formulation and, and and the processes that you guys use, rather than that having um, you know, been problematic for the business model and other people have taken your ideas and ran with them, actually it's had the opposite effect of of actually making your business development so much, so much easier. Yeah. So that's that's really great to hear. And I think there's an interesting point as well, Joe, around, you know, people's mindsets in terms of um, recycling and, and reusability where kitchen products are, are pretty well recycled now, but of yeah. course, beauty products and bathroom products aren't. So yeah. it, it's it, it's almost as if the industry that you're sort of trying to disrupt is, is a little bit further back than perhaps other industries that we typically think about as being very recycled. Yeah, very much so. And this is this is the thing. So with recycling, we know that the recy- recycling doesn't work. So less than 9% of um, personal care and beauty packaging is recycled. And one of the main reasons for that is that generally you keep most of those things in your bathroom and you're less likely to put something in a recycling bin. And a lot of the times the reason for that is that you look at the packaging and you don't know what to do with it. Whereas if we go downstairs into the kitchen and you've got a bottle of orange juice or a carton of orange juice, whatever that is, you immediately know what to do with that. <laughs> you, you know, you know where it goes. And, and, and we are just lazy by default. You know, your brain will is wired in such a way where it will take the easiest route. <laughs> yeah. And do you think as well, Joe, because because everything's so... Uh, I don't want to say cheap, but because the manufacturing processes have been streamlined and supply chains have, have, have changed and things like that, you know, we used to reuse a lot more 
stuff generally. We used to repair things more if there was if there were issues with them. Uh, whereas now, oftentimes it's actually cheaper to just buy uh, yes. a, a, something another another thing. So yeah. it's, it's part of your kind of project about mindset change as well and encouraging people to actually just why don't you just try reusing that rather than discarding of it yeah and the thing is so when it comes to consumer behavior a lot of businesses will talk about educating the consumer and that's just impossible you know you just you you know it's like trying to motivate someone it's yes you can do a bit of nudging and changing but that person has to be able to make that leap themselves it's the individual that has to do that. However, there is ways and techniques of encouraging that. So if you've got it where it's more accessible, it's convenient, and you have the choice of different brands, then the question is, you've then got it in front of someone when they're buying something, and the question then is, well, why wouldn't I reuse this? And once you get someone to reuse one thing, it's then easier to unlock reusing lots of other pieces. And we're working with, um, an NGO based down in Bristol, which is called City to Sea. And that's what they have done is they have, um, they run World Refill Day. And, you know, they are, they are known for their World Refill Day. But they specialise in understanding what the everyday person is looking for to nudge them into to reuse more. But the challenge that we always have, and it's one of my bugbears, is that when you're in a circular business model, you get compared with linear business models. And a linear business model is cheaper because you're only focused on one thing. You're focused on profit and how cheap can you make something so that your profit can be larger. So you don't take into consideration necessarily all of the people aspects. And when I say the people aspects, I'm not just talking about the people that work for your business. I'm talking about the full supply chain. And you certainly don't really take into consideration the planet because if you're looking for a piece of packaging that's the cheapest that you can possibly buy, it will be plastic and it will probably have been manufactured in the Far East. Yeah, Um, and you're not considering what emissions have taken from that. You just want to get that piece of packaging as cheap as you possibly can. If you look at reusable, the materials that we use are obviously more expensive. But we already have the data that over a very short number of reuse, that the emissions into the atmosphere are less than single-use plastic packaging, but also that the cost of the reuse is obviously less. The investment comes in the initial purchase of that um, piece of packaging. But we're working with lots of different types of models. What we've found is that customers are absolutely looking for brands and retailers to help them live more sustainable lives and they want to have access to more sustainable products and more reusable products at the moment it's just impossible for people to buy that unless they're really really looking for it yeah so obviously one way for people to do that is to take part in the return refill repeat scheme that you guys invented so yeah. You know, for people that may not have heard of that, do you just want to talk us through that that scheme? And, yeah, and, so and, we, yeah. we, we've shortened the, the logo and the badge to RE, as in okay. R-E. Um, and that, and the, the reason for that is about standardization. So the more standard that we can make different packaging formats and the more businesses and brands that we get to use those standards pieces of packaging, 
the lower the cost then is of that piece of reusable packaging. But it also means that it's interchangeable. So if we um, fast forward to five years where we've got millions, if not billions of pieces of reusable packaging out there in the system, we want to make sure that that a buy anywhere, return anywhere format. Because the last thing we want is to create reusable packaging that can't really be returned easily uh, and you can't really buy it easily. And we certainly, if, we're, if you're changing a business model, you don't want to get into the, the way that we've, we've done it before, whether that is with electric car points and plugs or, you know, way back when it comes to... to um, trains in their original format, the gauges. So it meant that you couldn't get one train from one end of the UK to the other because you had to change the trains. <laughs> right. we, want, we, we want to learn from our past experiences and bring reusable packaging that can be bought anywhere and returned anywhere. And it's really easy for people to do because the easier it is, the more uptake there will be. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I guess with anything like this where you're relying on sort of consumer buy-in you have to yeah. make it sort of convenient for them yeah. don't you so that's a really important point and you mentioned kind of profit-driven businesses versus kind of people planet profit-driven businesses which is obviously what what, what beauty kitchen is and you know these these ideas around um esg and triple bottom line accounting and I just wonder how much your kind of upbringing, Joe, is informed by that. You know, yeah. obviously you, you grew up just outside of, of Glasgow. And I know you talk a lot about how that kind of um, hangover from deindustrialization and the impact that that had on, on the people in, in the area kind of is part of what made you so passionate about sustainability. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I look at um, the background that I've come from and where we based Beauty Kitchen, we've deliberately based it where, you know, industry, it was built on the steel industry and, you know, the steel industry is no longer um, a part of, of this particular area of Scotland. In fact, you know, it's, it, it's, it's demise across the UK because the UK moved from a manufacturing country to a service country and don't get me wrong that's had its advantages yeah because we are ahead of a lot of other European countries from a service perspective and a digitization perspective um however what's happened is there's lots of areas of the country that have been left behind and it's not about the politics that's just fact and you know as we I always feel that I've got a responsibility not just to myself but the people that work within our business and the people that are part of this area and the sustainability, you know, when we think of basic things of reuse, it's like buying secondhand clothes, but there's a way to be able to make that. So somebody talked about vintage or retro and that then makes it more appealing. And that's just what we need to find when it comes to reuse. It's not that it's a down and dirty and it's something that you don't want to, it's aspirational, but it doesn't need to be coming from a design agency in London, it can come from somewhere like Wisha in North Lanarkshire, you know, um, in a, a, an industrial area of Scotland. It's about the people that are part of this. And what, what happens is the people that are, have built Beauty Kitchen, you know, we all understand the intricacies of the business because we don't just look through the lens of how cheap can we make something. Cost and commercials are always important 
to run any business. You know, I'm not saying that you can't look through that lens, but that should not be the only way that you make decisions. So we make decisions around B Corp principles, which is pe people, planet and profit, the triple bottom line. And what that does is it means that, you know, we, we pay the real living wage as an example, yeah? But we also pay the real living wage throughout our supply chain. So it's not just about beauty kitchen, it's about thinking further down the line. What's been interesting is that the way that we run our business, because we're, we're everyone has got this net zero that they have to think about. Now, at the moment it's voluntary to sign up to net zero, but I suspect that that will become compulsory if enough businesses don't sign up to it. And what do we mean by net zero? Well, net zero is getting, reducing all of your emissions. And that falls into scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one is your operations. For Beauty Kitchen, it's our site and our inner control. Scope two is about where do we get our energy from? Which suppliers? And are we using renewable suppliers for that? And scope three is almost everything else. So that is your supply chain, but your supply chain also includes who you sell to, to your customers, yeah? It also includes your employees in terms of how do they get to work, you know? And are they on a renewable energy supplier, for instance, at home? Now, a lot of businesses might think, well, that's not my responsibility. But when you look after people, planet, and profit, it is your responsibility. And actually, what we've found is going down our supply chain and speaking to our suppliers and contract manufacturers and the people, the businesses, they are looking for support and help in getting to their own net zero targets. And we're helping to facilitate that. Now, what happens is that you then generate a more collaborative business approach anyway, because you're all working to the same goal of getting your net zero, your emissions down as much as you can. And I think that's just you know, there's a timing piece here around net zero that will help to facilitate the way that people do business. Because if you are only, and Mark Carney said this, who is now the UN representative to get the financial sector on board. He said, if you are only looking through the profit lens, you will not have a business within the next five to 10 years. You know, and I'm sorry, he is a pretty you know, big guru when it comes to the financial services industry. He knows his onions, shall we say. And it's true. You can't, you need to change the way that you think about your business. Yeah. I think that is quite a recent development as, as well, Joe, because, you know, even just a few years ago, people would think, well, it would be nice to get the net zero, but I have to make X million pounds every year and 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 that's you know that's the, the the overwhelming priority of the business but this is coming down the track isn't it you know there's going to be uh sort of procurement opportunities that you could be frozen out of there's suppliers who who won't supply you there's customers who won't buy from you there is a whole suite of market forces that are driving yeah. businesses in, in this direction. And I think that's probably a, a good bit of, of advice for, for, for businesses is not to see this as a nice to have, but something that really well, it's is, an is about it's survival. An opportunity. So if you look at, for, for instance, we look at Beauty Kitchen, yeah. So we've got a project plan where we will reduce our emissions on site by just short of 90%. 
But what will happen, although we'll need to invest, so we'll need to get rid of our central heating, our gas central heating, for example, and we'll need to invest in probably air source heat pumps and some solar PVs, LED lighting, you know, loft insulation, stuff like that, really relatively basic stuff. There will be an investment that will need to happen. However, we have the calculations in terms of the return on that investment, and all of them are less than four years in terms of the reduction of our energy bills. So you need to look at it as an investment. It's a return on investment priority that you're doing that actually then makes your business more efficient and saves you money. It just takes a certain period of time to do that. But any business does that with return on investment. That's what it's about. Yeah, I, I think it's it's just about long term long-term thinking isn't it joe there's there's going to be this investment in the short term but but you know i mean fasc fascinating to hear that for example beauty kitchens looking at this and thinking you know these investments could be cost neutral by you know just a short period of time four or five years you kind of you know and and obviously there's there's all of those other imperatives driving it as well and you mentioned the the b corp uh status which which beauty kitchen has one of one of the many uh, accreditations that, that you guys have and I just wonder how important you think that is for businesses to think about. Yeah, it's all very well saying, you know, we're taking action to reduce our impact on the environment, but perhaps the proof will be in the pudding if you get these external accreditations. Do you think businesses should be, you know, applying for B Corp status and doing these things? Yeah, I'm a big advocate of third-party verification marks. And the reason for that is it makes my life easier in terms of identifying gaps within my business to make my business stronger. So it just depends on how you view third-party certification marks. They can always be used from a marketing perspective. It helps you stand out from, from other competitors. And, it, it, and every industry will have slightly different variants of third-party verification marks. The reason why I like um, we've invested in B Corp is that it gives a really good framework over five different business impact models. So that's the governance of your business, the workers of your business, the community of your business, which is almost everything outside of your employees, if you like. You've then got the environment and you've got your customers. And those five business impact models you get scored on and it lets you know where your gaps are and where you could improve. And it also then gives you advice on how to do that. It just works really well if you're time poor. There is an investment in time in terms of going through the certification in the first place. But I feel it's very, again, I look at it as if it's a new product development because what will come out of it will be innovation and a way to future-proof my business. And everyone, you know, can benefit from that. You don't need to be certified to understand what B Corp is looking for. So you can look at it. And if you're in Scotland, there is a um, Scotland Can Be as well that you can look at, which is, a, you know, a non-profit making organisation that will help you with your business impact model and to, for you to be able to understand. To be honest, it's accessible to anyone. It just so happens to be based in Scotland and called Scotland can be. Um, so I think that's a great, there's loads of, you know, really useful tools that are out there that can help you make that leap to having a more purpose-driven business. Yeah, I think uh, it's that holistic approach, isn't it, Joe? Yeah. And, and, and not just seeing sustainability as 
as looking after your people or looking after the environment or looking after anything else. It's, it's really sort of bringing all those things together. And at UMI, we're, you know, we're going through our sort of B Corp uh, journey at the moment, exactly because it, it, it kind of ties all of those things together. And, and, you know, perhaps if you are short on time, that's a, that can, that could be a way for you to be addressing all of the potential uh, sustainability red flags in your business kind of in, in, in one in one foul swoop. So yeah. I think just to kind of summarize some of the advice that's that's came through there, Joe, for businesses who, you know, small businesses, businesses that maybe they looked at COP26, they're obviously seeing what, what's coming down the track. Um, and they're looking to just make those really kind of first steps in, in terms of on their sustainability journey. So you mentioned um, sort of looking at your utilities and, and things like that. Obviously, um, recycling and, and and maybe he's looking at these external accreditations as well. Uh, are there are there any other things that you think or, or any mindsets that that, that they should be adopting? Yes, yeah, so there's a few things that you can implement quite quickly. So one of the things that we don't have is we don't have a sustainability manager, and I know that's probably the most popular job title that's on the internet at the moment. And the reason for that is I think when you give somebody a title like that, everyone thinks it's them that owns it. And unfortunately, the truth is everybody has to own sustainability. So, and the way that we've done it here is we have things like an environmental policy. Now, it's only a few pages long, and that environmental policy includes links to little videos, and, you know, it's something that you can get. If you if you put into a browser search, environmental policy, they will come up with lots of different examples, and it's then just choosing what's right for your business. You have to make it easy for people. So if you're asking them to recycle, you need to have the bins and you need to make sure that they're marked. Now, there's organizations that can do that for you as well. So again, it's just understanding when it comes to a renewable energy supplier, that reduces your emissions significantly. Now, a lot of people might think, well, I don't have um, I don't have control over that because it's my landlord that pays the, the electricity and I pay them. You can then challenge your landlord because at the end of the day, they need to be thinking about this as well. So, so you just have to have that confidence to, to think, I want to do the right thing. Um, but how can I make it manageable for me? The other thing is to have an ethical um, supplier code of conduct. Again, if you do a browser search, there'll be lots that will come up mostly from really big organizations. But if you download it and have a look, you'd be able to see, well, we do that and tick most of it off anyway, and then have your own. And then it's about communicating with your employees, get them engaged, you know, have someone that, that you know is interested in reuse or recycling for them to come up with the ideas. And if you have to have a sustainability manager, make sure that they are not the ones that are responsible for just the sustainability within your business it has to be everyone yeah i think you know get getting everybody involved you know challenging the partners that you that you're working with um implementing policies and and and, and procedures around this and and all of those things can be really useful so just finally joe you know what are your plans now for the future of of beauty kitchen and and the re scheme you know is there is there any big plans you can tell me about at the moment how are you sort of feeling about because it, it, it feels like a business like yours the only way is up right I imagine there are some kind of headwinds that you have to deal with and as a, as a small business you guys will be adapting to these net zero targets and things like that as well but how are you feeling about the future at the moment 
Yeah, I think just just to add on what else other people can do, you know, look to your industry. So, for instance, in our industry, we've set up the Sustainable Beauty Coalition, which I'm part of. And that's everyone from a standalone, you know, one man band hairdresser all the way through to big corporate companies like Avon. Every industry has its own industry body. And you might never have engaged with that before, but those industry bodies are engaging with the net zero targets. And generally they will have a lot of information that's specific to your industry that can really help. The other thing is the SME Climate Hub as well. If you if you log on to that, they've got loads of tools and techniques. And um, when it comes to Beauty Kitchen and Re, you know, we have some really big discussions with some really big organizations. And, you know, I think we, the, the reusable packaging is something that is on that roller coaster of almost getting to that very top piece. And, you know, it's really exciting. The great thing is we are bringing retailers together, we're bringing brands together, and we're bringing consumers together to make reusable packaging accessible convenience and that they have the choice that they're looking for and I think then the consumer will be the person that will drive this because as soon as they start to buy those reusable packaged products the retailers and brands will then engage more and it just gets you know it just multiplies from there the good thing is that as we get bigger all of the standards that we've already set in terms of, you know, real living wage or cradle to cradle certification or B Corp certification and, and how we run our business, that will continue to be part. And it should then touch more people as we, not just within Beauty Kitchen and RE, but within our full supply chain. And that's quite exciting to be able to, you know, get that out and not, not be seen as niche anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, because you know, I I imagine it's felt probably not so much in in recent years, Jill, but but you know, maybe like 2014, 2015, some of those conversations that you were having about sustainability and reusability would have been a bit like talking to a brick wall, I imagine. Whereas now, definitely, it was, everyone just, is, yeah, yeah, ev- everyone, yeah. everyone is now wanting a piece, a piece of this, if you like. So. Yeah. It sounds like the company has a really, a really, really bright future. So yeah, thanks so much, Joe. And how can people kind of get in touch with you and, and the business if they want to find out more? Yeah, so we're on the usual social channels um, and I'm the only Joe Chidley on LinkedIn at the moment. So that's easy. And if people have got any questions, then please, you know, contact. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Well, thanks so much for coming on, uh, Joe, and great to speak to you and take care. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, there you go, Joe Chidley there, giving a really comprehensive overview of the way in which markets and business communities and whole economies are moving in a more sustainable direction. Lots to digest from that conversation, but I think one of the most powerful things was the way in which uh, Beauty Kitchen, by being a purpose-led business and sharing expertise and collaborating with other industry partners, And putting its people first, these are the things that have enabled that business to be so successful. You know, Joe spoke passionately about not just being driven by profit. And I think Beauty Kitchen's example shows how putting sustainability at the heart of everything you do can actually reap major dividends in the long run. 
Some other things to think about are the importance of things like external accreditations. You can apply to become a B Corporation uh, and this covers all aspects of sustainability, so that's a good option. Also remember that everyone in your business is responsible for making it sustainable. Uh, so think about how you can engage staff on this journey with you. And then how can you challenge your partners and suppliers and customers to do more? Uh, because as a business, you can use your platform to drive adoption in the places that you have influence. And then lastly, just remember that failure to act now could mean that your business is locked out of the market in the future. There are big changes coming down the track and early adopters of sustainability will undoubtedly be rewarded for their kind of foresight. So uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about this, you can head over to the UMI platform where we have tons of resources covering all aspects of sustainability. So definitely head over there and check it out. Well, thanks so much to Jo for coming on the podcast and sharing her amazing story and insights. And thanks so much to everyone for listening as well.